With Tesla Government's knowledge management solutions, you are adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your institutional information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com. They realized that that wasn't the right approach, that you couldn't simply try to build up from the local level these islands of, of effectiveness. You really had to be trying to advance the broader state building project in the country in ways that support it at the high level, but also at the local level. Hi, my name is John McElligot. Welcome to the 1CA podcast. Our guest today is Mr. Jonathan Popolitis. He is a fellow of the Columbia World Projects. Uh, his full-time job is executive advisor of Fragile States for World Vision, a very, very big influential development organization. In the past, he used to work at the UN Department of Peace Operations. He's also working at UN OCHA, the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. Jonathan, uh, this last year, was very helpful in helping to brief my reserve, Army Reserve Civil Affairs Unit, about what's uh, what was going on in Indo-PACOM and some guidance about fragile states directly ties to his experience. So, Jonathan, welcome back. I'm uh, really glad to have you on this uh, 1CA podcast show, and uh, it's good to see you again. Great. Thanks, John. Great to be here. Jonathan, um, we want to talk today about country coordination platforms, what they are, whether they're effective, um, how they tie into U.S. fragility strategy, you know, sort of whole government approach, and whether that's been effective. So I was wondering if you could frame for listeners sort of the, the big picture. What is a country coordination platform and are they effective? Thanks, John. So virtually every fragile state now has a development plan where it spells out what it wants to do for its population, for its institutions, for its markets over time. And yet when you go down to these places, you see instead of a process that can support this development plan, uh, really a sea of projects that, that donors and implementers are, are working on, often at arm's length from each other, rather uncoordinated, and without a mechanism for a meaningful dialogue with government that takes all the different actors uh, together. And so the country platform is an attempt to try and introduce what we might think of as a change management process in a fragile state so that things there's more streamlined coordination, there's more streamlined cooperation and the communication, and that you're really trying to solve collective action, understanding and financing problems together. Now, despite having trying to do these platforms for over the last 20 years, there is no guiding doctrine. <clears throat> these are not very visible uh, mechanisms in aid discourse right now. So there's been a lot of false starts. There's been a lot of ad hocery, uh, reinventing the wheel in terms of these processes. And we really need to get better in terms of figuring out how do we do these? How can they become a really robust mechanism for change? And what can we learn from past experiences? So a lot of my work over the last 10 years has been trying to do this learning and put forward a concept of a country platform that can be applied to multiple contexts with the idea that the platform itself is not a cookie cutter approach, it's a change management approach to better understand the context and bring the different actors together. So briefly, let me, let me just say there are three components to a successful country platform. The first is usually a high level group that brings together the head of state or the prime minister of the country 
with donors at a senior level, with representation from civil society, if not also firms in the country or, or business associations and implementers. And the idea at this level is to have a political and policy dialogue in terms of what's going right, what's working, what's not, how do we troubleshoot at this level, how do we try to drum up resources or avoid duplications, for example. So the high level is really meant to be that kind of overall steerage body. Below that body is a set of groups that are run by ministries themselves that are trying to assemble the core group of operational partners and investors and stakeholders from, again, civil society and other associations to really understand how do we do security sector reform, rule of law reform, health reform, education, infrastructure. And so the minister is meant to lead these kinds of processes and develop sector policy in ways that then donors and implementers can then contribute specific projects. And this helps create more coherence in the approach as opposed to this kind of everyone doing their own thing in a particular place or sector. And when there's a set of problems that the sector group or the ministry can't handle or they've become about you know, higher level decisions around resource allocation or there's just political bottlenecks, that usually gets referred up to the high level. Now, operating all this and kind of below the sector groups is the idea of a secretariat that is usually run by the Ministry of Planning and embeds both national expertise as well as international expertise. And the function there is to ensure that the, there's the running of the entire platform. The working groups have agendas, the, the high-level group is being staffed, but they're also there to provide research and analytics and progress reporting and also to do some troubleshooting as well. How are things moving? What is urgent? What needs to be uh, channeled up in terms of what's happening at local levels, sub-regional levels? What needs to be on the attention of the different sector groups or, or the high-level group? So this is sort of in a package what the country platform is trying to do. And again, it's in fits and starts. What we've seen last year, though, is a kind of a really big pivot now towards country platforms. So the World Bank, for example, has said that it will commit to really solidly investing in 11 pilot country platforms, where it will either support existing platforms or help to establish new ones with the government to really move this process. The G20 group has also made a big commitment to supporting uh, these, these country platforms, as has the OECD uh, last year in its States of Fragility report. And we're seeing UNDP also backing these, these processes. So this is a real moment for us to lean into these better processes for transitions and, and change management. Jonathan, thank you so much for framing that. I, I want to refer listeners to two articles that, that you've written or co-written. So one was back in March of 2020 that was published by um, Global Delivery Initiative, and it's entitled Country Platforms in Fragile States, A New Path for Development Cooperation. And then the other article, which people can check out on the U.S. Institute of Peace website, which is uh, usip.org is entitled, Amid COVID, We Need Enhanced International Coordination to Build Peace, co-authored with Corinne Graff and Tyler Beckelman. So in that article, the, the one with the USAIP, I think you lay out those different, those different levels, right? You're talking about the, uh, for example, uh, you mentioned at the high level, the steering group, the sector groups, the secretary, and so on. When you look at 
those 11 pilot countries that would be funded or some others that are on your list as, as fragile states, do you think that they're already heading in that direction? Do you think that they have the internal capacity to come up with a functioning steering group or sector group or secretariat? Or is the goal that if they don't have it right now, it'll get there after five or 10 years, however long it takes? So I think the the example of Somalia is is probably the most instructive in terms of what is possible from a country platform in a really challenging place where there's a just a constant set of risks and crises happening at the same time. Uh, taking going back to, to 2012, Somalia was coming off a really punishing famine in the country, and it was trying to, with donor support, mobilize a transition, a political transition to an election. And there wasn't much else going on in the country in the sense of a development process or change management system. Around that time, they decided to set up a country platform uh, with support from, from some of us in terms of advice giving. And they also decided to set up a compact a, from this process called the New Deal, which would bring together some agreements from donors and the government on what was needed and what kinds of resource commitments would be provided. And we see over time that the country platform has been this real center of gravity or anchor in the process even as the compact, initial compact, and, and strategies that came out of it came and went. So even though there have been successive strategies, the, comp the platform has been the constant. And it really has provided this place where people could sense make what was happening, what was needed by the donor community, uh, what the government needed to do. It created this sense of mutual accountability in the process, both at the high level and also at the working levels. And as a result, the platform itself evolved from an early platform, which was sort of donor priority heavy, to one in which the government was able to increasingly exercise its own policy positions, introduce them, get support for them. There were two institutions of Somalia government that were created around the platform itself that was almost parented by the platform. One was the National Development Council and one was the National Security Council. And so this platform has done really, um, I think, pivotal work at a critical moment in, again, streamlining coordination, dialogue, cooperation, solving collective action problems at a key moment. We did a podcast last year with the Center for Global Development on Somalia's platform, which involved a, an advisor to the prime minister on economic issues and the former country director of the World Bank in the country. So you, one can find that as well. And it really traces this evolution of what's next. The other, I think, key part of what Somalia's platform did <clears throat> was to bring together this peace and security pillar, which was one side of the equation with the development side as well. And so you had under one proverbial house, this platform, conversations, planning, tactical arrangements, around the whole kind of a whole of government or whole spectrum of work that was needed in the country. And there's now a sort of a 3.0 version of the platform being tabled in the country that is gonna help, I think, make bridges between those two pillars even closer. And then therefore provide more adaptive and kind of responsive insights for the high level group to help steer uh, forward. The think tank ECDPM in Europe did a great report on Somalia and the so-called nexus, 
which details some of this uh, important work that the platform has done. So that can be looked at. And then you have Sarah Hearn's uh, independent review of the New Deal process that is published by NYU Center for International Cooperation, also showing some of the merits of this platform. Jonathan, thank you so much. Um, really glad that you touched on Somalia. We'll come back later after the break to some other examples of how the whole government approach has been effective, uh, also where it's been a disaster and why that's the case. Um, before we take a break, though, I want to ask you this other question about the U.S. Fragility Strategy. So the U.S. Fragility Act was passed, you now rolling out the strategy. And I'm wondering if you could tie that, if there is a connection, to country coordination platforms. First of all, how has the, U the new U.S. Fragility Strategy been rolling out? What are you hearing from the field about its potential impact? And what is the connection uh, between U.S. interests and a country coordination platform uh, with allied nations? So the U.S. Fragility Strategy, which was, is a requirement of the Global Fragility Act that was passed last year in a very bipartisan way, requires a key set of uh, changes to be introduced in terms of how we do work in fragile states. And I think they're all very promising. This, because the strategy came out in December uh, in between administrations, it's still early days for the Biden administration to sort of get its legs around uh, this new strategy and to really pick the countries that they're going to be focusing on. So there's a bit of a wait and see there, but there's, I think, very uh, strong encouragement uh, from the fact that Secretary Biden, during his Senate confirmation hearings, mentioned several conversations with the president around fragility, uh, the need to better address these contexts from a developmental and humanitarian standpoint, as well as a national security standpoint. So that I think is very promising. In terms of country platforms, there are both in the Global Fragility Act and in the strategy to the US playing a leadership role in setting up coordination mechanisms in country with government, with multiple partners and stakeholders to better uh, coordinate efforts on the ground, again, for this change management process. So I think that is very encouraging as well. There's also some really great references in the, the strategy itself to focusing more on resilience, which is fundamental in the sense that the definition of fragility is increasingly a place where you have really complex interacting risks of conflict and disasters and extreme poverty and epidemics and pandemics and very low coping capacities within the state or the community or society at large to deal with them. And so we have to be able to really understand as a community that these complex risks need to be seen more holistically. Oftentimes, if you're in the conflict side of the house, you're looking at conflict risks. But if you're an environmental person, you're looking at climate environmental degradation risks. If you're in humanitarian work and early recovery, you're looking at disaster risk recovery types of risks, but we don't really see the whole picture at all times. And the strategy really encourages this kind of approach, including for stabilization and for prevention efforts. The other thing that the strategy does, which is very important, is introduce this idea of so-called adaptive management. We've, as, as an aid community, have really been trying to work in fragile states with one hand tied behind our back, which means that we 
we take programs that are meant to have a sort of preconceived solution to them and then roll out in a very fixed linear fashion with fixed metrics and partners and resources. And none of this is really able to change when there are risks or crises afoot in the country or where we learn more about uh, what's going on in these places, in these very complex political economies. And so, as you would imagine, having a program that is this rigid and inflexible to change into learning uh, does not make for a very fit-for-purpose type of approach in fragile places. And so over the last few years, USAID has really been experimenting with these new sort of adaptive approaches to learning as you go. What's working? Uh, what's not working? How do, we, uh, how do we make course corrections so that we can be more shock responsive on the one end, but also more sensitive to political, economic, and social contexts and how changes in them will affect the technical approach that we're trying to implement, whether it's for rule of law and democracy and governance or for uh, health and education and food security. So that's really promising and it's now embedded in the GFA itself as a kind of a, a legal requirement to be using more of these adaptive approaches. So these are all very promising uh, steps that we see coming out of the strategy. And now it's really about implementation. Jonathan, thank you so much. Uh, I would like to think that the Civil Affairs Forces, Active Duty Reserve, et cetera, and the Army and the Marine Corps could play a role in that you know, within the country team. So if they're operating a team and they have that fragility strategy within the country team to know where they have a role and to be additional eyes and ears in the field um, to you know, be part of like that feedback loop so that the country team knows what's going on, that they can adjust strategy, hopefully. And I would also like to think that if we were doing projects in the field, we would also be able to adapt and evolve and adjust. Uh, sometimes that is faster and slower depending on where you are, what the circumstances are. We'll take a short break. And when we come back, we will continue our discussion with Jonathan Papalitis about whole of government approach and also some advice that he has for the connection with civil affairs forces. We'll be right back. Everywhere you look, there's a barrage of emails and information telling you what everybody has done, is doing, or plans to do, all in excruciating detail. But access is only half the battle. You also need information presented in a usable form. But that takes work, and the more information you have, the more work it takes. Tesla government takes on these issues so that your office or agency can fully exploit the data you already have. Our knowledge management experts organize and curate your internal data. Our open source research augments your knowledge base with strategic insights from our globally experienced team. And our data visualization turns complex data into compelling visuals, while our community building makes sure everyone benefits by leveraging collective knowledge. With Tesla government's knowledge management solutions, you are adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your institutional information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com. Do you have an idea for an upcoming podcast or know someone who may be a good person to interview? Contact us at capodcasting at gmail.com. Welcome back to the 1CA podcast. My name is John McElligot, your host for today's episode. And our guest is Jonathan Papalitis. Jonathan, you'd mentioned earlier the example of Somalia. Can you give some other examples of where the whole of government approach has been effective and why was it effective? So 
the UN and the World Bank did a report a couple of years ago called the Pathways for Peace Report. And in it, they detail sort of promising approaches to prevention, to peace operations, to resilience. And they mentioned a few places like Niger uh, and, and Ghana at, at critical moments in its own uh, sort of escape from fragility, where country platforms, where early warning and detection, where peace mediation processes, both at local and higher levels, uh, where a sense of national unity and, and norm change have all been important parts of a, of a recipe for, again, getting out of getting out of fragility, getting out of conflict situations. But as I mentioned before the break, there really isn't a lot of work being done on, again, country platforms or these new ways of working and what we've learned from the missteps of the past. And so that's really where we are now. We really need to be calling for and, and requiring deeper studies into how these platforms have worked, how these whole of government uh, initiatives have worked in ways that are actually bringing together multiple donors, right? Multiple whole government processes. How have they aligned? How have they misaligned? I think of the case of Haiti uh, after the earthquake where you had still a, uh, a kind of stabilization mission from, from peacekeeping at the UN and you had this massive natural disaster. In part, that's, that's, that's going to be what the future looks like. I think in many of these cases, as we see climate change and an increase in extreme weather and other, other variables kind of bumping into conflict uh, factors, bumping into extreme poverty and all interacting. And in Haiti, there was this country platform that was set up right after the earthquake called the Interim Haiti Recovery Commission, which if you go back to the design that I, I outlined earlier, had a really strong high level group. Uh, it was meeting regularly had very senior representation from the aid community, the government, other actors. And it had a very strong secretariat as well, with a lot of support given by the US government, by the EU, by several donors, and, and many consulting firms as well. So they had very two of the levels of the three that I outlined were very strong, the high level and the secretariat. What was utterly missing though in that commission was a place for the ministries themselves to set up their own groups in advance, governance, rule of law, infrastructure, economic reforms, basic services. And so it kind of marginalized them to the point where they were complaining that this commission had become almost a parallel government without their real voice uh, and leadership inside it. And the other effect that it had was to really emphasize this projectization of fragmentation of the recovery approach in Haiti, because when you have a secretariat that is building up and amassing recording all the different projects that were being delivered in Haiti, but without a mechanism for then having ministries and sector groups try to align those to sector policy and strategy, then it doesn't, there is no amalgamation point. There is no point of alignment. And what you had were meetings then of uh, the high level looking at project after project and trying to make sense of it at that very high level and how it aligned to a very uh, promising but abstract national development strategy. You were missing that core part where the ministries themselves and their core group of partners were able to make sense of all the projects and, and again align them, solve for duplications and, and gaps in the process. 
And so Haiti went on to close that commission after its tenure had expired, and it invented a smaller one, which then brought back the ministries, which is called CAED, C-A-E-D. You see that now, but again, you don't see a lot of great investment in that process. You don't see a lot of intentionality of donors to be uh, really trying to make this work in a very adaptive way, and against the backdrop of a lot of political change in the country. So whereas in Somalia, uh, the platform was a tether, an institutional constant as things were constantly changing, in Haiti, it doesn't have that same sort of grounding. So this is, I think, a differential that we have to really study and figure out what more can be done in these types of situations. Yeah, absolutely. And um, quick follow-up to that. Does this require a longer-term view, right? So yes, we had bipartisan support in the U.S. Congress for the Global Global Fragility Act, which called for the strategy. I would assume that it requires a sustained level of bipartisan support for the U.S. strategy to be executed and in these partner nations where we're pushing for a country coordination platform, it also requires in those countries a sustained effort. Otherwise it's gonna be fits and starts as you talked about. And from one administration to the next, they're gonna have a different approach, different people, different qualifications, of course, and it's just not gonna catch on after a while. What do you see about that? So I think the, the good thing on that front is that there's always been very strong bipartisan support for aid, at least in the last 10 years or so. So I I foresee that moving forward. The Global Fragility Act itself had a lot of strong bipartisan support, if not real champions on both sides. So I think at the the congressional level, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of tight. In terms of the actual implementation of this and, you know, changes within state and USAID and DOD and NSC, et cetera, this is where having the country platform at the country level can provide a disciplining kind of force where the whole government approach doesn't always remain coherent or intact at the headquarters level in DC. It has, I think, a stronger chance at the country level where there's a stronger sense of we've got to play together uh, within the US government because there's a lot of other actors in this space and we need some coherence and, and consistency across the board. Uh, I was part of a group at the Center for Global Development that produced a report on U.S. development assistance in fragile states written by Sarah Rose. And we make that, that point in, in the document, which is that whole government approaches need the tethering at the, at the field level as well, at the country level. And these types of mechanisms can provide that sort of additional support. Jonathan, this has been a really great discussion. Uh, We've talked a lot about country coordination platforms, the whole government approach, the connection to the U.S. fragility strategy. I was wondering if we could close out with um, one final question about the bigger picture for civil affairs forces. So you are so incredibly well-versed in development. You understand CA. What should members of the civil affairs community be doing to build their greater understanding of development actors, their different capabilities, and how to collaborate abroad, whether it's connecting with them before they're deploying, when they're deployed, who do they connect with? What advice would you have for the CA listeners? Well, I think before the break, you actually spelled it out quite nicely, uh, John, when you said that civil affairs officers that perform a role of not only 
um, working locally to advance mission objectives and, and broader U.S. Uh, development objectives, but also being that kind of a connecting uh, uh, piece between the, the, the national country platform and what's happening at the local level, providing a feedback loop, um, working adaptively to try and figure out what's really happening uh, and what can be done, what are the opportunities, and then feeding that through their own channel in terms of the peace and security side of country platforms where those existed in um, Afrato State, but also working within the interagency, uh, the development folks, the humanitarian folks to figure out what could be happening on the other side of the country platform to advance development objectives. I think that would be very important. There's a great lesson that comes out of, I think the Somalia Stability Fund, which is an FCDO led fund in Somalia with a lot of other donors, largely Scandinavian. Ed Laws uh, at the Overseas Development Institute did a, did a great um, report on it. And it notes that in the first eight months of the fund's operations, it was trying to take a very community uh, level focus to stabilization. It was trying to create so-called pockets of excellence or, or uh, pockets of effectiveness with the hope that over time, if you have enough of them, it will lead to a kind of a bottom-up change in Somalia. And about eight months in, uh, working very politically uh, and, and very adaptively through this fund, they realized that that wasn't the right approach, that you couldn't simply try to build up from the local level these islands of, of effectiveness. You really had to be trying to advance the broader state-building project in the country in ways that support it at the high level, but also at the local level. And the point being that there are too many forces inside the country that are trying to keep state building from happening, from trying to create sort of uh, centrifugal forces where the members, the, the states themselves within the federation are at, at, at loggerheads with, with other parts of the country and, and with the government. And so it, there needed to really be this kind of a focus on top down and bottom up, this kind of missing middle. And so I think that's a huge lesson for, for folks working in this space, including the, the civil affairs officers, to try to take what's happening at the country platform level to advance a very fragile state building project and, and work with those set of priorities with the institutions that are trying to be created at the local level uh, in ways that support this entire uh, state building project. One example of that is that the, the Somalia Stability Fund helped create a, a set of local institutions, line ministries, uh, government offices, and they were able to coordinate that with the World Bank, who was a key member of the Somalia, uh, of, the, of the country platform, in ways that they could come in afterwards and help actually build the capacity of those offices. Uh, another one is you know, this constant priority in the country to build a national safety net where you can have, instead of every, every plan for themselves in some ways, you can have a safety net that would respond quickly to crises, to drought conditions, et cetera. These cannot be done from the bottom up, right? These need to be processes that are well thought out and financed at very large levels and then supported at the local level. So I think that could be a great possible role in, in terms of um, how civil affairs officers find their projects, their initiatives that they really can support within their mandate. Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, Jonathan Papalidis, sir, you're a fellow with the Columbia World Projects. You're our uh, executive advisor on Fragile States for World Vision. A wealth of experience that you're bringing today to the show. 
Thank you so much for being on the One Seat Podcast. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. The Unomia Journal is expanding its content to reach a broader audience and engagement across defense and governments to include other partners in allied countries. New sections in the Warrior Scholar Corner and the Team Room aim to deliver content useful to our members. Check out the Unomia Journal at www.unomiajournal.com. Thank you for spending some time with us. Please subscribe and come back for another installment of 1CA. Until then, be safe and secure the victory. In civil affairs, your success depends on getting the right information to the right people at the right time. Whether it's foundational information for a team about to head out on a mission or putting together a map or other data visualization to brief a general or an ambassador, Tesla Government Solutions and staff can help. With Tesla Government's Knowledge Management Solutions, you're adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com.